Hey there, Chuck here, a longtime listener coming at you from the class of 1986, welcoming you to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. So brace yourselves as Dee and Jason are about to drop some knowledge, blow your mind, and maybe even spike the football. Jason, it says here, by the time the average American is 50, he's got five pounds of undigested red meat in his bowels. Why are you telling me this? What makes you think I have any interest in that at all? Well, you eat a lot of red meat. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back to the Shirley You Can Be Serious podcast, everybody. What what season are we in? You will not believe it. We are starting our fifth season Get of this. the f*** out of here. No, I am serious because we are doing our fifth season. <laughs> Cannot believe it. <laughs> People listen to the show after five years? I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> Today, D, we are talking about the biggest movie of 1984. The biggest. The biggest. And one of the biggest movies of 1987. And we're comparing them against themselves. Yeah. But they're basically... Carbon copies of each other. Yeah, this is one of those episodes, like, we typically, we hold off our judgment until the very end is kind of a little teaser for our audience, right? We want people to want to know which movie we're going to pick in this one. I'm not going to be able to keep my opinion to myself during this process, Uh but as I was watching the second one, the William Goldman quote kept popping into my head of, all sequels are whores. Yeah. So you may love part I two. I do love part two. You may hate part two. I don't know, you know, but it will be fun to discuss these two very similar, but also very distinct movies. Okay. So we're talking about Beverly Hills Cop versus Beverly Hills Cop part two. Yeah. We're going to be doing the freaking Neutron Dance. We're going to be doing the Shakedown. It's going to be awesome. Yep. I got my keyboard here. I'm ready to pound out some Axel F. <laughs> um, on, on, on that note, by the way, next few episodes after this, we're going to be comparing the Beverly Hills Cop soundtrack to the Miami Vice soundtrack. So be sure and hit follow on your podcast app so that you will catch those episodes. And then we also need to give a shout out to our executive producer of this show, Miss Carrie Ahern. Carrie, thank you so much. Carrie signed up on our Patreon page to be one of our Patreons. If you would like to sign up on our Patreon page, you just go to patreon.com, surely podcast. And for as little as five bucks a month, you get access to all of our one hit wonders and you help to support the podcast that Jason and I spend hours and hours on. And we have a lot of fun, but we, we love the appreciation and we love the family that is our Patreon family. We create some one hit wonder episodes over there that we really think are some of our best work. Absolutely. And we also want to give a shout out to a listener who contacted us by email, Mr. Chuck Bryan. Yeah, I was talking to Chuck and we were emailing back and forth a little bit and uh, just kind of asking him how he found us. And it was really fun to interact with him. Yeah, he was a big fan of the Run DMC versus Beastie Boys episode shout out to our co-host on those episodes deaf dave but he said he loved the way that we give the whole treatment like he didn't have uh run dmc in his rotation on his playlist but after our episode it became a a part of what he listened to 
That's really cool. We we love when we get feedback like that. Yeah, we love it. All right, let's jump into Beverly Hills Cop. Do you want to be the lemon twist? Uh, uh, yeah, sure, if it's no bother. No, don't be stupid. Okay, so if you have been a listener of our podcast, you have heard the story of Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer when we did our Top Gun episode, and you have also heard the story of Tony Scott when we did our Top Gun episodes. If you have not listened to those episodes yet, please go back and listen to them. I mean, it involves a dead, naked doctor in a pool house owned by Don Simpson (laughs) as just one of the many stories that are involved in the making of that movie. And we've also told the story of Eddie Murphy because we covered, in our very first season, we covered Trading Places versus Coming to America. And so we talked about Eddie and his journey to become who he was. Trading Places was one of his first movies with 48 Hours, and then this one was quick on the heels, right? I don't want to interrupt your flow here, but Eddie Murphy's 1980s was amazing. Yeah. Now, his 1990s is a different story, but just listen to his 80s, okay? 48 Hours, Trading Places, Beverly Hills Cop, The Golden Child, Beverly Hills Cop Part 2, Raw, Coming to America, and Harlem Nights. It's not too bad. I mean, that's that's smoking right there. Yeah, and it's the, uh, he, you know, when he's in the hotel and he's talking about the article that he's going to write, Michael Jackson sitting on top of the world. Yeah, yeah. Well, Playboy had done an article on Eddie Murphy in 1983 called Eddie Murphy on Top of the World. I'm guessing that that's where he got the idea for the title. And I'm also guessing that he probably improved most of that scene. But we'll get to that in a little bit. Okay. You can go and hear the stories of Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer, Tony Scott, Eddie Murphy on our past episodes of Top Gun, Trading Places, and Coming to America. So who have I not told you a story about? Marty Brest. Martin Brest. That is correct. Well, actually, we, we did talk about him just a touch when we did war games yes and that is definitely a big part of his whole story but this is uh this is a guy that we haven't really dive dived deeply into dived. we haven't we dived dove dove divved, divvy. Divvy. we haven't gone down the martin breast hole yet <laughs> and this episode will be the one let's that check we do out that. yeah <laughs> so marty breast was Raised in New York, grew up watching The Honeymooners on TV, which comes into play a little bit later on. Right. Ultimately, he goes to film school, and in 1972, he does his student film, which is called Hot Dogs for Gauguin. All right? Yeah. Do you know this? I'm more familiar with Hot Dog the movie, but keep going. Okay. Yes, I know. <laughs> a little different. So so this movie involves this photographer who is going to blow up the head of the Statue of Liberty so that he can catch it on film and become famous. Okay. And it's it's the loosely based on the Hindenburg disaster, right? Yeah. Okay. The actor that is playing the part of the photographer in this movie is an unknown Danny DeVito. What? Now here's the here's the other part. The only three actors in the movie are Danny DeVito, Martin Brest, who's playing a part in his own movie, yeah, and a young woman named Rhea Perlman. Stop. Nineteen seventy two. Danny DeVito and Rhea Perlman didn't get married till nineteen eighty two. This is probably where they met. Is on Marty Brest student that? film when he was at the AFI Conservatory. All right. For those of you who don't realize who Rhea Perlman is, she plays Carla on Cheers. Yes, and was married to Danny DeVito for a really long time. Yeah, really. I think they separated in maybe twenty seventeen. Not too long ago. Yeah. yeah. 
He does another film, just another kind of low-budget student-type film called Hot Tomorrows in 1977, when, right after he graduates with his MFA from the AFI Conservatory. And interestingly, that same year, Michael Eisner hits up this writer named Danilo Bach about yes. doing this movie that he's had an idea for. Now, there's a little bit of... You know, where did the story really come from? Right. So Don Simpson says, the Beverly Hills Cop story idea originated from when I was driving my old beater car in Beverly Hills and I got pulled over by the Beverly Hills PD and they kind of hassled me. And I thought, well, what if a cop came in here and he just happened to be in a beat up car? So that's part one of maybe the origin story. And then the other one is Michael Eisner. And he actually was living in Beverly Hills at that point and was a big wig in Paramount. And he, his home had gotten broke into. He and his wife had had a home invasion. And the Beverly Hills PD were like on, like we were in the door within like three minutes. Right. Like it was r ridiculous how fast they got there, right? So a little, a little bit of apprehension at Outsiders and a really, really dedicated team to its citizens, right? So here's the thing. I, I heard this story as well. I don't believe Don Simpson for one second, <laughs> right? Don Simpson, because I heard him also say that he and Bruckheimer went into Eisner's office and they were reading upside down the scripts on top of the desk. It's the same story. I, it was Jeffrey Katzenberg instead of Eisner. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, Katzenberg, but, yeah. Yeah, Katzenberg. And yes, they saw it, but what, he, what his statement was, hey, that's my story. That's our script. We should be the ones that are producing that. And Katzenberg was like, well, okay, go do it. Yeah, take it. Right. So, hey, I'm sorry. One more thing I wanted to mention to you before we got off of Marty Brest. He actually appears in Beverly Hills Cop. Okay. He is the hotel clerk at the very end when Axel Foley is got his arm in a sling and he's like, "Excuse me, sir, do you sell those Beverly Hills robes?" Cuz I guess are those are $95 each. He's like, "Ah, money's no object. I'll take <laughs> This one's for you, Billy." That's Marty Brest. Well, perfect. And if you if okay, now that you know that, when you guys when our audience when they go back and watch the film, look at that guy and then go back and look at the statue in the art gallery when Axel Foley first comes in, there's this weird table where these heads are yeah. spinning around on a table yeah. and a Mater D is like standing up and he's got a chain around his neck. Yes. He also looks exactly like Marty Brest. <laughs> So anyway, this the Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer have got this script. They're trying to get it done. They actually see Eddie Murphy at some point on the studio lot and they talk to him about this. And he was he's like, I would love to do that movie. Now, of course, this is the, the movie comes out in 84. So this had to be happening around 81, 82. I mean, Eddie Murphy is still doing Saturday Night Live. Sure. Maybe he's gotten started doing 48 hours or trading places or something like that. But he's still pretty much a new actor on the scene, right? But they love the idea of Eddie Murphy being this out-of-town cop who comes to Beverly Hills. Right? So here's the thing. Dan Bach, when he wrote the script, originally, yeah. he had in his mind guys like Al Pacino, James Caan, Clint Eastwood. Yeah, I mean, he write, started writing it in 77. So at that point, those were the guys who would, you would pick for something like that. Well, and then get this name, Richard Pryor. Ooh, now that one's, that's a little different. That's interesting, right? Right. Well, ultimately by this time, they get the script to another guy because they're thinking, hey, we want to add some comedy to this thing. The one that Bach had written was a very straight piece. They've got Eddie Murphy that they think is going to be a part of this. So they think, well, we've got to put some humor in this. So they get another guy named Daniel Petrie. He hadn't done much at that point, but he was a guy who was a little bit better at comedy writing 
And uh, he later would do several of these kind of movies. Did Turner and Hooch later on too. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so during this time, also, Marty Brest is trying to get work as a director, right? Actually directs Saturday Night Live episode in 1980. He, as I said, did uh, The Hot Tomorrows. But in 79, he did this movie called Going in Style. Have you seen this thing? No. Okay, so it's got George Burns. It's got Lee Strasberg. We talked about, remember, we talked about both in our Godfather 2 episode and more recently when we did our our Five Minutes of Fire episodes, he was the teacher of James Dean. Yeah, Marlon Brando disowned him, but James Dean said, yes, Strasburg was my teacher. That's right. right, That's right. So it's it's got George Burns, it's got Lee Strasburg, and it's got Ed Norton from The Honeymooners. And it's about these old guys who sit around in a park and suddenly decide, I'm tired of just sitting here, listening to these crappy kids. I want to go do something adventurous. And they decide to go rob a bank. I'm pretty sure I've seen this movie. I think I saw it when I was a little kid. I was a big George Burns fan, but they, they their plan is to put on the Groucho Marx glasses and that's going to be their disguise. Okay. Yeah. And George Burns puts it on at some, some point. And Lee Strasberg's <laughs> is like, Roy, what are you doing? He's like, dang, so you can recognize me. Uh-huh. <laughs> so anyway, he's done this. And then he gets his big break. He gets tapped to direct Matthew Broderick's big new movie that they've been working hard on called War Games. Right, right. Damn it, I'd piss on a spark plug if I thought it'd do any good. Let the boy in there, Major. Well, he gets going on that. He spends a couple of years developing this thing, right? And then, while they're in the midst of shooting, like he's shot multiple scenes and weeks with Matthew Broderick and with Ali Sheedy, and we kind of talked about this in the War Games episode, all of a sudden, he gets fired. Right, just kind of out of the blue, really. Kind of out of the blue. Like he was he was having disagreements with one of the producers and he got fired. He had to take the kids aside and say, listen, guys, I, I'm afraid I don't think I'm going to be your director anymore. And like they were in tears. They didn't know how to react when John Badham came in, but we didn't really delve into what happened there. So he had gotten fired, which I've listened to him talk. He's He's upset about this. Like he's like, this doesn't happen in Hollywood. I've had my first big movie opportunity and I got fired. And what that means is I'm probably never going to direct another movie again. And so I've just spent the last 10 years of my life preparing for something that I'm not going to be able to do. It was so bad. He would be walking along the sidewalk. He would see somebody he knew walking the other direction toward him, thinking that he hadn't seen them and get on the other side of the street. So they didn't have to talk to him. Ouch. Really bad shape. Right. Right. And so he's down to $500. Oh, his rent is $450. Oh, man. And Jerry Bruckheimer is calling him up saying, I want you to direct this movie. And so, of course, he says, no. Right. What? No. He said no? He said no. Like, multiple times he over said no. Over and over. They're like, we love your work. We want you to come do this. He's like, this is not the kind of director I am. I don't do action movies. I don't know how to do action movies. I'm not the right guy for you. Like, his focus is character development, right? He is like a channeling an actor through the actor, right? He is a guy who is focused on character, not on action. And so he thought he was ill-equipped for it. And so literally he's, he doesn't know what he's going to do after he pays his rent and is down to 50 bucks and they're calling him again. And he's saying, no, no. And they're on the phone pressuring. He's like, I'm not going to, Jerry's like, I'm not getting off the phone with you until you say yes. And he's like, hold on. And Jerry has no idea what he's doing. You know what he's doing? Flipping a coin. He flipped a coin. He said to himself, heads I do it, tails I don't do it. Flip the coin, 
it was heads. Uh-huh. He said, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> I don't even know how you as a director who realizes that your career is probably over can say no to Eddie Murphy, Jerry Bruckheimer, and Don Simpson in this time. How could you? It's a Paramount movie. How could you turn down anything at that point? Yeah. Cinemax wants you to make an After Dark movie? <laughs> Whatever, dude. Sounds good, you know? Yeah, exactly. Now, a couple of other players come in at this point. We've got... Mickey Rourke, and we've got Sylvester Stallone. Right. What do you tell me? Well, so here's the deal. So they were worried about whether Eddie Murphy could carry a lead role in a movie. Right. And they were looking for somebody who could play that sort of Detroit guy. Again, at this time, they're still deciding, is this a straight action movie? Is this a comedy? Is this a mixture? Well, after they see Diner, they are introduced to Mickey Rourke, right? The story is, is that Dom Simpson cut his picture out of like a newspaper and holds it up and says, isn't this guy great? Like Mickey Rourke's face, right? <laughs> of course, this is way before he injects it with a billion things of Botox and yeah, whatever. HGH will change the shape of your face. <laughs> but I mean, so Mickey Rourke was, we talked about him in Rumblefish, right? Yeah. So this is right after Rumblefish. He, he, my sister-in-law taught him how to drive a motorcycle. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and so they, they sign him to a like a hold contract. Right. So they're like, Hey, Mickey Rourke, we want you for this movie. It's not quite ready for you. We're not ready to shoot yet, but we want to pay you $400,000 thousand bucks to hold. Just don't make a movie. Right. Just sit there and pay. We're going to pay you to sit on your butt. Yeah. Well, time goes on and that contract expires. Yeah. Daniel Petrie was reworking the script at this point. They were expecting him to be done and he didn't get done. So here's the interesting thing to me. When I think about Mickey Rourke being in this picture, or the guy we're going to talk about next, when you look at the actor that they cast to be Michael Tandino, yeah, I don't buy him and Axel Foley as childhood bros. No. Are they both good actors and talented people? Of course they are. Yeah. But I see that guy who played Michael Tandino and Mickey Rourke a lot better together. They, they look like they could be brothers. Right. So, yeah. so anyway, there are some leftover pieces uh, from the casting process, which we'll talk about in a minute. Yeah. So Mickey Rourke's contract expires. He leaves. Okay. Now they're going to go full court press after Eddie Murphy. Right. Well, behind Simpson and Bruckheimer's back, the studio offered the picture to Sylvester Stallone. Yeah. And they thought, there's no way he's going to do this. Comedy is not his thing. Right. So he says, yes. yes. He wants to change the name from Axel Foley to a Axel Colbretti. Yes. And we actually get Colbretti a couple of years later. Yeah. Known as the movie Cobra. Yeah, so what Sylvester Stallone did was he takes the script and he's like, let me work with this. He wasn't really into the comedy part of things and he tried to rework the actual dialogue to sound more like he talked and he injected it full of action sequences because that's his bread and butter, right? Sure. And so what their initial budget for the movie was was $14 million. By the time they got Sylvester Stallone's script back, it's a $20 million or more script. And keep in mind, Simpson and Bruckheimer don't want him anyway. Right. They want Eddie Murphy. Right. So here's the interesting thing. One of the final climax sequences is Stallone as Axel Cabretti in a Lamborghini going head to head with a locomotive, like a, like a, a train, some sort of train sequence. Okay. And they're like a Lamborghini and a train. We can't afford this. What do, what? Right. We can't afford the Lamborghini. Right, right. Well, I mean, it's paramount. They could have afforded it if they wanted to, but 
Simpson and Bruckheimer are like, guys, you don't want to risk this much money right. on an unknown concept here. Go back to the $14 million, Save yourself. All you have to do is go to Stallone and say, I'm sorry, we're only going to give you $14 million to make this movie. And he'll bail. And they're like, we don't want him to bail. And they're like, well, do it. And so uh, Barry Diller, one of the producers, he goes, he looks out the windows. He's like, tell Stallone that we're not going to do it with him. Yeah. And, they, they, and Stallone is out. Now, I did hear that there was a kind of a behind-the-scenes story where there wasn't any orange juice in Stallone's dressing room. <laughs> I heard that, too. <laughs> <laughs> and he lost his mind. Yeah. You I, know. I, I get the impression that Stallone may be a bit of a prima donna. Well, hold that thought because Eddie Murphy goes full-blown prima donna in part two. So. <laughs> right. Right. So, ultimately, Stallone is out. Eddie Murphy is in. And basically what they did with Stallone is they said, whatever elements that you put into the script that you have, you obviously can keep those. Uh-huh. We're not going to use those. And so that's how we get the movie Cobra. Cobra. Starring Sylvester Stallone and... Bridget Nielsen. Yes. The disease. And I'm the cure. Which, uh, I mean, she, she shows her face here in just a little bit. <laughs> So Eddie Murphy's back in. They've got a comedy script and they've got a director. Now they just have to cast the rest of the movie. Right. Okay. So let's talk about the cast. Okay. Yes. For people who didn't grow up in the 80s, I don't think it's really possible to explain how big of a superstar Eddie Murphy was at this moment in time. Trading Places had come out in 83. Summer of 83. Sure. 48 Hours had come out. 82. 82. So he had had two successful movies back to back. Well, plus Saturday Night Live. Right. Obviously that. Yes. He's in a better position than Bruce Willis was when he signed up for Die Hard. No doubt. He's he's looking pretty at this point. 24 years old when he does Beverly Hills Cop. 24. That's so crazy to me. You know, this is the cleanest and nicest police car I've ever been in in my life. Things nice in my apartment. And so we'll talk about the results of this movie here in a little bit. But basically, once Beverly Hills Cop is released, Eddie Murphy's probably the second most famous person in the world. On top of the world. Michael Jackson's probably number one (laughs) at this moment. Right. So Eddie Murphy goes supersonic after this movie. Yeah. So let's talk through the cast here. So Lisa Albacher plays Jeanette. Yep. Is this your car? Oh, no, in Beverly Hills, we just take whichever car's closest. I know her as Seeger or Segar from Officer and a Gentleman. Never seen the movie. Sheesh. So, yeah, she plays one of the cadets in Officer and a Gentleman. Okay. She's great. I think she looks wonderful in this movie. She's not a standard beauty. She said they spent two days doing and redoing her hair to get the right hair. And you go back and look at that, and you're like, oh. That's the style I of the 80s. The, the frosted, fluffy look. Yeah. <laughs> she was actually hired to be Stallone's love interest. Yeah. Yeah. Because Stallone had changed that part. It, it was initially supposed to be a platonic relationship, and then Stallone changed it to be a love interest. Yes. You also have in this movie, you have Stephen Burkhoff as Victor Maitland. Yeah. My advice to you is crawl back to your little stone in Detroit before you get squashed. Okay. This guy played a awesome bad guy in the eighties. He's like he's like the precursor to Hans Gruber, right? He I really mean, is. Yes. Yeah. He's got that cold European disdain that you just you loathe him. It's fantastic. It is. So listen to this run that he has in the eighties, okay? He does Octopussy in eighty three. Yeah. He does Beverly Hills Cop in eighty four. He does Rambo in eighty five. 
He does Under the Cherry Moon in 86. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> he uh, becomes Prince's uh, bad guy. Uh-huh. Okay, now then, when they're hiring, they need, they need Rosewood and they need Taggart. Yeah. We're more likely to believe an important local businessman than a foul-mouthed jerk from out of town. Foul-mouthed? You, man. They audition a bunch of different guys, and they're looking for that right combination. Yeah. Now, keep in mind, Marty Brest is in this, and Marty Brest grew up on the Honeymooners, right? Uh-huh. He said, he also love Laurel and Hardy. Like, you've got this combination that they they antagonize each other, right? John Aston said he had it was his fifth callback. Like he he was like they keep calling me back. I'm with a different actor. I'm with a different actor. I'm with a different actor. On the fifth callback, I come in and they put me with this kid, Judge Reinhold. Right? right now, by the way, Judge Reinhold came from Amy Heckerling. Marty Brest and Amy Heckerling were friends, and he called her up and is like, "I'm looking for a." very straight-laced guy who could still do comedy. And she's like, I've got the perfect guy for you because she had just done Fast Times at Ridgemont High with Judge Reinhold, right? Right, right. And so when John Aston gets paired up with Judge Reinhold, they're standing in the hall, they're talking, they're like, do we improv some stuff? Do we stick to the script? What do we do? And Judge Reinhold is like, do you know what the movie's about? And John Aston's like, no, I've only ever gotten this scene. This is the only scene that I know. Right. And so then... Judge Reinhold is like, oh my gosh, you've got to know. And he tells it, he goes through the whole plot line of the movie with him. And John Aston's like, okay, well, let's just get in there and let's just, let's improv off each other, knowing this and see what we can do. And that's what got them both apart. Wow. You know, it says here that by the time the average American is 50, he's got five pounds of undigested red meat in his bowels. Why are you telling me this? What makes you think I have any interest in that at all? Well, you eat a lot of red meat. I love it. Then you have Ronnie Cox, who plays Lieutenant Andrew Bogomil. One last time, what are you doing? I'm on vacation. Vacation. <laughs> Ronnie Cox just turned the page on what he was going to get cast as, because he had come from Deliverance, where he's the, the victim, you know, with the dislocated arm over his right. shoulder in Deliverance. And then he comes in as the hard-nosed chief of police, right? By the book. By the book, yeah. Fantastic job. And yeah. then, and then, of course, he goes on to be more villainous characters uh, as time goes on after this, right? I'm in Total Recall, the RoboCop. Yeah. He, he has a nice little run himself, you yeah. know? Okay, I want to talk about Paul Reiser as Jeffrey. Yep. Kind of before he blows up. Sure, yeah. Right before Aliens. Yep. Where he plays Burke, I'm going to nail you right to the wall, Burke. And then Mad About You. I mean, Paul Reiser does you know, a bunch of stuff oh, in the late sure, 80s. He's, yeah. Yeah. And he's a great actor. I, I, his his comedy in this, this is not my life. <laughs> <laughs> you have Jonathan Banks, who plays like the second baddie. He's the it, man who wrecks the buffet at the <laughs> Harrow Club. Yeah, he's he's fantastic. He's fantastic as a bad guy. And he was one of my favorite characters in Breaking Bad. He's Mike in Breaking Bad. And he is phenomenal. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Let's talk about Bronson Pinchot for a second. On the run and tell me summers that uh, Mr. Ahmed Fali is here to no, see Axel Fali. Axel. Ahmed, Ahwell, Axel. Fali is here to see her. He's our old acquaintance. So, Bronson Pinchot had been in nothing except Risky Business. Right. As one of Tom Cruise's buddy, high school buddies. Joel's friends, yeah. Start, yeah, starts this, the, the brothel with him, right? Right. But Marty Brest knows him somehow. They're talking, like, in the living room, you know, of one of their houses or whatever. And Bronson Pinchot is like, I don't want to play this part. And and Marty Bruss is like, okay, he's good. But, but if I did, 
if I did play this part. Right, right. He's like, you know how in when you walk into like the retail stores, like there are these guys who just have this accent and you have no idea what I mean, is he French? Is he Israeli? Is he right. Moroccan? Right. What is and he, and he says it and he goes into the accent of My name is Serge. And, yeah. Yeah. Marty Brest says he just falls on the floor in hysterics at this accent that he's doing. Like he's he can't control his laughter and then gets on his knees and says, please, please, you have to be in my movie as this part. And Bronson Pinchot is like, I have a Hollywood director on his knees begging me. Right. I have to say yes. Right, right, right. Yeah, And of course, then he takes that accent and makes it his character in Perfect Strangers. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So he doesn't come back in part two, does come back in part three. Have not seen part three. Part three is horrible. He's actually like an arms dealer in part three. It's the most stupidest uh, crap. Yeah, that's bad. Now I do know that he shows up again in part four. I saw him in the trailer. Okay. So we do have Serge coming in part four. I'm excited. Okay. I like Bronson Pinchot. He's I, I watch every episode of Perfect Strangers. Really? Yeah. Okay. Good. All right. I want to talk about briefly. Damon Wayans shows up as Banana Man. You go and take damn bananas. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember seeing Damon Wayans on a talk show, like David Letterman or something about that, talking about that being his very first part and how the part was just supposed to be a throwaway, but he decided to give him the effeminate touch and that nailed it, got him the part. Damon Wayans with hair. I don't remember. The, I think that's the only time I've uh, ever seen him with hair. Yeah, it was receding. but It was yeah. on its way out. And if yeah. you don't know who Damon Wayans is, he goes on with his brothers to produce Living Color. The in Living Color? Yeah. Yes, of course. Put the end in there. Don't let me get it. Don't, hey, don't be confused with the band, awesome. okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, they do In Living Color together, and he becomes a blank man and major pain and all this other He's stuff. hilarious. Yeah. My Wife and Kids is such a funny show. Yeah. Okay, but I do want to talk to you about Gilbert R. Hill. It blew me away when I learned this guy's story. This is the guy who plays Inspector Todd. As I was watching part two, and he was on, I'm like, that guy is so freaking good. I can't believe he's not in more stuff. Like, he's such a good, gripey, angry police chief. He's he's the guy that sets the stage for all other hateful police chiefs, right? Is that and Foley in here? Yeah. So, he was an actual cop. Yeah, homicide. He, he joined the Detroit Police Department in 1959. By the 80s, he was head of homicide. By 1997, he was the president of the city council. He ran for mayor Yeah. in 2001. He lost. But this guy is like a cop and politician in Detroit. Well, th and the way he got his part was Marty Bress was in... Detroit scouting out places to shoot, right? And he's like, of course, we have to go to the police station to see what a Detroit police station looks like. And Gilbert Hill is there. And he starts talking to him about his life as a homicide detective. And as they're talking, he's like, I just love the way that this guy sounds and speaks. And he says, would you be interested in reading for the part? And Gilbert Hill is like, sure, why not? I heard him talk about the only major difference between him, his actual self and Inspector Todd yeah. is that he said, I'm not as foul-mouthed as Inspector Todd is. <laughs> like, he likes to drop the F-bomb. Yeah, it's, it's so freaking good. And yeah, you as you mentioned, he, he has a lot of political success later on, and he says, I owe it all to that movie. I owe it all to getting cast in Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah, I did want to mention this little nugget. When Judge Reinhold first met Don Simpson. Yeah. When he, like, they're shaking hands. 
Dom Simpson starts to show him all the semi-automatic weapons he's got in his trunk of his car. Trunk of his car, which, of course, comes up in Beverly Hills Cop 2. That's right. By the way, one other thing on Judge Reinhold. Yeah. I didn't realize this, but he and Bill Paxton were buddies. They met on the set of The Lords of Discipline, which is an 83 movie. It's a really good movie. Okay. But they're all dinking around in England because they're bit players. Uh Uh-huh. And so they end up starring in... Pat Benatar's video for Shadows of the Night. We're running with the shadows of the night. So baby, take my hand, it'll be all right. What? Just because they're on an off day, they don't have anything else better to do. You go back and watch that video. Boom, there's Bill Paxton. Boom, there's Judge Reinhold. Before anybody had any idea who they were. Oh, that's crazy. So. Wow, that's a good story. Yeah, there you go. Okay. I don't know if you realize this or not, but Marty Brest ends up using John Ashton in Midnight Run. Oh yeah, as the bounty hunter. We, I mean, Midnight Run is a great, I think, underappreciated movie. For me. I have not seen the movie. I wanted, to, I oh. try, I wanted to try to see it before we got to the episode, but I did not get a chance to see it. But I so knew that good. you loved it. I yeah. love it. Yeah, and that's another great, you know, switch of the cast because he decides, hey, you know, remember at the beginning he was thinking, I can't do this. It is an action comedy and i'm that's i'm not an action guy well he totally it's like well i guess i am and he does midnight run and then he's like a comedy who do i get and robert de niro's like can i be in your comedy right he's like raging bull taxi driver you want to go do comedy come on buddy let's do it it is so good oh that's fantastic i love it okay so while they're making the movie as i mentioned before marty breast is very much about character like you know not the action guy but the character guy sure and so he, the way he does it, and I love this, you know, because you have some directors that are like shot after shot after shot after shot after shot, trying to get it perfect. And then you've got like Clint Eastwood directors that are like, okay, I think we got it on that first one. Let's move on. And mm-hmm. the actors are like, wait, could, do you want to do it again? Uh, why? You want to waste everybody's time? Right. So Marty Brest is kind of, to me, like the perfect mixture of that. He will shoot on script for the first two or three takes. And then he's like, Okay, now improv it, you know, and he will take the improv, move it around. And so a lot, a whole lot of this movie is improv lines, which you would expect from Eddie Murphy, right? I mean, of course, but also with John Aston and Judge Reinhold, they were improving a ton of their stuff. Those lines that we quoted at the beginning of the episode about, you know, red meat and why would I want to hear this? Will you eat a lot of that was the scene in the script was they wait in car. Right. Exactly. Like that was it, you know? And so he's like, give them something. And so their scenes by themselves, they would improv. Well, a lot of what we got was their improv work, including the, I can't climb over the wall scene where they're on the shoulders. Which so is funny. So good. But then when Eddie Murphy comes in and does scenes with them, their job is just to react to his improv, right? He, they're just there to riff off of whatever he does. Now you've got Ronnie Cox in there who is, I mean, he's the, professional of them all right he's been in plenty of stuff and he's a guy who's used to doing things on script but he said it was not even though eddie murphy would riff and go off script and do all this other stuff he said he was brilliant about it because he would do it in such a way that by the time he was finished with his improv line it was a perfect setup for whatever Bogomil's next line was going to be. Sure. And so he could still say his scripted line. And he says, so then I have this wonderful opportunity. It's like they say, acting is reacting. I get to just be there and react to this craziness and then just throw my line in when it's time. Yeah. 
You know the scene, the super cops speech that Eddie Murphy gives? You yeah. Know, Before I knew it, these boys had foiled the crime. <laughs> they're, they're not cops. They're super cops. Right? Yeah. Yeah. When you watch that scene, John Ashton is like rubbing his eyes, trying, dying to to laugh. Yeah. And he had already said that, that we had ruined many a take and Eddie's, you know, trying to do this and trying to be funny and we're trying not to laugh. But he's doing like this. I mean, it was like Harvey Corman in Carol Burnett's show. Yeah. He's just busting up, trying not to laugh. Tim Conway. Yes. You know, so funny. Yeah, so in that scene, they, they would do the improv stuff, and then Marty Brest would be like, do it again. By the way, they also wasted film when Marty Brest was sitting on next to the camera because he would start laughing so hard <laughs> that the camera would shake, and they would have to reshoot the scene again because of him. But that super cop scene, like they had been shooting for a long time in that scene, and Eddie Murphy had this purity oath that he had taken where he wasn't going to consume alcohol, wasn't going to consume drugs, wasn't going to do anything to mess with the purity of his body while he's shooting this movie, right? Right. Well, that included caffeine, but they'd been shooting this scene for so long and it was there was so much dead air that Eddie Murphy was kind of winding down like he was worn out. And so they're like, you could have some coffee. Right. And he's like, okay, I'll make an exception for coffee, but that's it, just coffee. And he said, he just took couple of little sips of the coffee but since he had had nothing for so long it was like jolt it was like bang electrified and that's that's where you get that scene so when you see them and you see Aston like holding his laugh holding his nose to keep from laughing out loud judge reinhold you can watch him his hands are in his pockets he knows what's coming like he they've done it they're retaking it for the fourth time he is pinching himself on the leg to keep from laughing like he's like i had bruises on my leg i was pinching myself so hard to not laugh in that scene you know that with the scene where they pull up to the harrow club Uh and marty breast is like hey eddie we got some dead air here can you give me something and he's like sure backs up pulls up forward he's like hey can you put this in a good spot all this crap happened the last time i was here it's a great line it's so funny gets a laugh yeah and Eddie just whipped it out of his back pocket. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you know, one of the things I forgot to mention when we we're talking about the production. Yeah. When it was still bouncing back and forth between, is it an action film? Is it a Stallone film? Is it a comedy? We're not sure. Is Eddie Murphy involved? What about Mickey Rourke? This script was offered to Martin Scorsese to direct this. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, can you imagine? And he's like, what, what, what are you guys talking about? This is not me. Yeah. So they go to David Cronenberg. Yeah. How violent a movie could this have been? I know, like somebody would have eaten their own fingers or something. (laughs) But here's the funny thing. Martin Scorsese looked at the script. He said, this is Coogan's bluff. Oh, yeah, the Clint Eastwood deal, The Clint Eastwood movie, right? It's just a cowboy cop comes into a big city and it's a fish out of water tail. Yeah, he's like, this has already been done. Yeah. Well. Sort of. Yeah, not exactly. By the way, when Eddie Murphy was hired to do Beverly Hills Cop, he turned down another movie from 1984. Do you remember the movie? I absolutely do. Because when we came across that nugget, when we did our episode on Ghostbusters, uh-huh. I found out that Dan Aykroyd had written the Winston part with Eddie Murphy in mind. Right. And all of a sudden, all of the Winston lines are coming to me in Eddie Murphy's voice and Eddie Murphy's delivery. I was like, how I like my comment was this movie is on a top notch level, but it would have moved up. Right. If, if that, of course, I don't know, because it was a Bill Murray vehicle, right? And so what do you do if you've got both of those guys? I don't, I don't, know. I don't know, man. I, in the alternate universe where I can go and rent these alternate movies, yeah, I do want to see the Ghostbusters version with Eddie Murphy as Winston. Yeah. However, I would not trade 
the current Beverly Hills cop for that Ghostbusters movie. 100%. 100%. So he's like, he's got the opportunity to do a bigger part, more money. He takes that instead of doing Ghostbusters. Right. And turns out it's a success. So Marty Brest's career is saved. Yeah. In this action. Right. And the movie opens up at number one. Yes. The first Eddie Murphy movie to open at number one in the box office. And he would do it six more times after this. Ooh. In a row. That's incredible. What a a run, man. Yeah. So this was released December 1st, 1984. It's actually considered the biggest movie of 1984, even though it made the majority of its money in 85. Right. And that's saying something because Ghostbusters was a megaton bomb. Yeah. So I, I want to throw this at you. Just just listen to this real quick. Okay. Here's the, the list of the top 10 movies of 1984, okay? Okay. This is a fun little ride here, All okay? Right, yeah. Beverly Hills Cop, number one. This is by Box Office Return? This is by, this is domestic. This is the United States. Okay. Okay. So you've got Beverly Hills Cop, number one. You've got Ghostbusters, two. You've got Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, three. Gremlins, The Karate Kid. Police Academy, Footloose, Romancing the Stone, Star Trek Three, Splash, and then you get Purple Rain at 11, okay? Wow. All of those, lots of fun. Yeah. And if I can just jump to 1987 for a second, and by comparison, talk about Beverly Hills Cop 2. Yeah. A whole lot less fun at the box office was had in 1987, okay? It still did very well. Sure. So in 1987, your top movie, Three Men and a Baby. Wow. Wah, wah. Yeah. Wah, wah. <laughs> Number two, <laughs> Fatal Attraction. Okay. That's I mean, fair. it was big. Yeah, that's fair. Then you have Beverly Hills Cop Part 2. Good Morning Vietnam. Great movie. Moonstruck. Meh. The Untouchables. Great movie. Secret of My Success. I loved it, but I was a huge Michael J. Fox fan. Stakeout. You loved it. I love it. Yeah. Lethal Weapon, we both love. Uh, absolutely. Witches of Eastwick, yeah. Dirty Dancing, and Predator. Well... Not bad. It's not bad. There's I mean, some. If you compare it to the top ten movies of 2023, that's true. I guarantee it's going to be nine movies better. I'll take 87. That'll do. Yeah. 100. So we've, we're 287. So that that means that we're moving on to Beverly Hills Cop Part Two. So that brings us to Beverly Hills Cop Two, which we will take up on our next episode. We will see you back here next week. No bananas in the tailpipe. Say it like you mean it. <laughs> you don't know what bananas in my tailpipe. <laughs> You're not falling for the banana in the tailpipe? <laughs>